following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity and was recorded at Westminster Chapel in Toronto. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to declare the Lordship of Jesus Christ over every area of life, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Our scripture reading this morning is in 2 Samuel chapter 2, and we'll be reading from verse 1 to 17. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong, and be valiant, for Saul your lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim, and he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites, and Jezreel and Ephraim, and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was forty years old when he began to reign over Israel. And he reigned two years. But the time, uh, but the house of, of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Abner the son of Ner and the servants of Ishbosheth the son of Saul went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab the son of Zeruiah and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, Let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number, twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore that place was called Helkath Hazurim, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, my brothers and sisters. Let's pray before we consider God's word together and ask for his grace and his blessing on his word. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we believe that the words that we have just heard are the very words that you have entrusted to your people through the generations. They are your words. They are holy. They are inerrant. We trust what we hear. And it's our prayer now that the same Spirit who has inspired and written and preserved these words would write these words upon our hearts. As we consider your word together, would you conform us to the image of your Son? And may we respond to what we hear in faith and in obedience, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, this morning we are returning to our series in 2 Samuel. And you'll know from last week, I reminded us of where we had been in 1 Samuel. And if you're visiting us here at the church, we spent quite a bit of time last year, from January right up until July, in 1 Samuel. And now at the beginning of this year, we are returning to this history and returning to 2 Samuel. And what we saw last week was David's response to the report of the death of Saul. And we may have expected David to be relieved upon hearing this word, or even rejoicing that finally the one who had pursued him, the one who had tried to kill him, was dead. But instead, David responds with profound grief. And he writes a lamentation, and he asks, and he, he, and he commands that this lamentation be taught to the people of Israel, that they would learn to lament as he is lamenting for the death of Saul. And what this tells us is that David is present in that moment in the history of Israel. And he recognizes the tragedy of that moment. And the tragedy of not just the death of Saul, but the fall of Saul from grace, the fall of Saul from the glory that he once had as God's anointed, as God's king. And so David is attentive. He's attuned to the present moment. And he responds with a lamentation. And then we turn over the page to chapter 2. David has finished the lamentation, and we read, After this he inquired of the Lord. Now he's praying. He goes from lamentation to petition. And he inquires of the Lord, Should I go up to the cities of Judah? And this shows that David isn't just stuck in the present moment. He's looking ahead. He wants to know what's next. And he's forward-looking, and he does so in prayer. He looks ahead. And this is an important moment, not just in, in the history of David's life and experience, but in the history of Israel, because now the man who is a man after God's own heart is coming to the throne. Now he is becoming king. And God has prepared him for this moment. He's prepared him for this time. David has spent probably about 10 years in the wilderness being chased by Saul. But the wilderness is a time of testing. David needed to be tested. God will lead us through times of testing. He leads us through the wilderness. And the purpose of the wilderness, the purpose of testing, is that God might prove our faith. He's testing us to prove our faith, to strengthen our faith. And this is what is happening to David as he goes through the wilderness. His faith is being tested. His faith is being strengthened. And the question is, will he trust and obey God's command? And he falters, but he does. Will he rest in the presence of God, in the providence of God? He does. He learns that. Will he hope in the promises of God? He does. And so he's ready now. And he's 30 years old. And this is a significant age in Scripture. And if you read through the Bible, you'll find this. At the age of 30, this is when the priests were set apart for service in the temple. It marked a transition. David's taking on a new role, a new responsibility. Let's remember that Jesus was 30 years old when he was baptized and when he began his public ministry. And so David has, has arrived, so to speak. He's ready. He's been prepared. But his new reign, his new kingdom begins small. It begins at Hebron just with the tribe of Judah, just with the men of Judah. It begins small. But we need to remember that the kingdom of God begins small. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of small beginnings. 
And that's what we see with David here in Hebron. But even that kingdom that he has in Hebron has the marks of the kingdom of God. And that's what I want us to consider this morning, the marks of the kingdom of God. So first, there's four of them. First is the small beginning. That's a mark of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of small beginnings. And David proves faithful with little. He proves faithful with a small thing. And that prepares him to be faithful with more. And so we see the kingdom of God spread. We see the kingdom of David grow. But it's little by little. It starts small. The kingdom of God is marked by prayer. It begins with prayer. David doesn't just assume, oh, I'm going to go up and become king. No, first he prays. And it's marked by the priority of prayer. That marks David's kingdom and also marks the kingdom of God. It marks our lives in the kingdom of God, prayer. Thirdly, benediction and invitation. David hears the report about the men of Jabesh-Gilead and he blesses them. There's a benediction. And then he calls them to come and join his kingdom. And so it is for us. We hear the blessing of the word of Christ and we hear the calling of Christ to come and join and follow him. And then finally, there's opposition. And we see that in the north with Abner, with Ishbosheth. I have a hard time pronouncing that. We'll see how I do. But there's opposition. There's a rival king. And so it is in our, our experience in the kingdom of God. There's opposition. So first, a small beginning. Now let's remember, David has spent 10 years. He's spent all of his 20s in exile, being chased by Saul. And he had with him a band of men. And this was a bit of a ragtag band of men. And we know from 1 Samuel that they first came to him at a moment when David had just narrowly escaped being uh, captured and tried by the Philistines. And these men are described as being in distress, in debt, bitter in soul. These are the men that David has around him. And we also find out that they are from his own household. It's his family. It's his extended family who's with him. And we're going to meet some of his extended family as we read on in 2 Samuel. Joab is his nephew. And we know from these men that they don't always share the same priorities, the same convictions as David. So they're not necessarily motivated as David is by the purposes of God or the promises of God. They've got mixed motivations. And some of them are simply loyal to David. They're loyal to him. But they're not necessarily loyal to God. They're not necessarily concerned with the kingdom of God. They're concerned with what's going on with David. And so these are the, these are the men that David has around him, and he learns how to lead a group like this. And he's faithful in that. But even there, it's a small beginning. And then he goes up to Hebron, and he takes these men with him up to Hebron. And there the men of Judah crown him as king. He's anointed. And so now he's given charge over not just his own family, but the tribe of Judah. So it begins small, but he's entrusted with a little, and then he's entrusted with more. And now he has charge over the tribe of Judah. Now, as we look at this from a global perspective, you know, just imagine you're a Philistine or a Hittite or uh, an Assyrian at the time. You know, how, how is this perceived, what's going on in Hebron? And let's also notice, too, how it's reported. 
We've been waiting for this moment. We've been reading about David. We know he's the anointed one. We're waiting for the time when he's going to become king. And finally it happens. He's ascended to Hebron. He's anointed. And look look how it's described. It's half a verse. Verse 4. The first half of verse 4. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. That's it. You know, I'm expecting a bit more fanfare, a bit more excitement, some pomp and circumstance. And it's just simply reported. It's almost like a footnote. And that's telling us that this is a small thing. And as we read on these early years, we're actually not even going to hear much about David. People like Abner, people like Joab, they're going to dominate the story, dominate the history. So it's a very small thing. And from the perspective of the surrounding nations, what do the Philistines think about this? Well, David's our guy. He was just one of our mercenary soldiers. Okay, he's now got a little kingdom there in Judah. That's fine. He's our man. We probably, they probably saw Judah as their vassal state. What about the Hittites or the Assyrians or the Egyptians? They probably don't even notice what's going on here. The kingdom of God is often hidden. It's often overlooked. What about the other 11 tribes? Well, initially, in the short term, they throw their support with the, behind the house of Saul. Abner, Ishbosheth, I knew it. And from the perspective within Israel, they've got more people, they've got more land. And if you're thinking, okay, where's the kingdom of God? Where's this happening? Well, it must be in the north. It's bigger. Seems to be better. Abner is a pretty impressive guy, Saul's right-hand man. And so we're reminded the kingdom of God, Jesus says, is like a mustard seed. It begins small. It begins seemingly insignificant. It's often hidden, often overlooked. And the point in this is what God is doing in David's life and through David. Yes, a small beginning, but it is a beginning. And the kingdom of God would grow. And the kingdom of David would grow. And let's just remember when Jesus ascended, when he was enthroned at the right hand of the Father. What did the kingdom look like at that time? It's a small group of people, 120, hiding and huddled in the upper room in Jerusalem. They're afraid. The doors are locked. But they're praying. And soon they would be anointed with power from on high by the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And then we read in the book of Acts, the word would go out. The people would go out. And it's been going out ever since. And the gospel of Jesus has filled the whole world. And people from every nation have bent the knee to King Jesus. But it started small, and so it starts small here. And the point for us is, on the one hand, to recognize sometimes what we're doing as a church, in our own lives, it seems small, it seems insignificant. And yes, from the perspective of the world, it may not seem like much. But from the perspective of heaven... Don't think that God isn't doing great things. Don't think that God isn't carrying out his purposes through us as a church, through you in your individual lives. But also the learning for us in this is that David didn't immediately just become king of all Israel. It came in time over his family, then over Judah, then over all of Israel. And he reigned over Judah just seven, for seven and a half years and then over all Israel. And it's a reminder what Jesus says to us in the parable. This is Matthew 25. He calls on us, be faithful with a little. Be faithful with the small things. 
And then he says to those who are faithful with a little, faithful with the small things, if you're faithful, then I will entrust to you more. You've been faithful with a little, I will set you over much. And that's a reminder to each one of us. Like David, we need to prove to be faithful in the little things. And some of us are anxious to, you know, we want to we take on more. We want to come into a position of prominence. We think, all right, let's go, let's go. But we haven't proven to be faithful in the little things. So prove to be faithful in the small things. And for those of us who are younger in particular, be faithful in your studies, be faithful at work, be faithful in prayer, be faithful in humble service in the life of the church. Be faithful in those things, diligent in those things. The proverb says, a man's gift will make room for him. Your gifts will make room for you. But in God's time, prove faithful in the little things, and God will entrust greater things to you. And here we need to be reminded too that what the world calls greater things is not necessarily what is great in the kingdom of God. And Jesus himself reminded us of this. Look, the world has its own idea of what authority and greatness and power looks like. It's not that way with me. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. And so it is for us. Humble service is greatness in the kingdom of God, in the life of the church. I think in particular this morning of the incredible and great ministry of motherhood, for example. I know we've got new moms in the church, and I know how it is. You're at home. You know, you're, you're concerned about nursing. You're concerned about uh, the sleep schedule. But if you look at the history of the kingdom of God, if you look at the history of Christianity, the history of church, the church, it is a history of faithful, persevering, praying mothers. And don't underestimate the greatness of your faithfulness as a mother. And it's a reminder to each one of us of the significance of our faithfulness, our obedience in our day-to-day lives, in the little things, in our work, in our families. So the kingdom of God, yes, is a kingdom of small beginnings. It is like a mustard seed. It's easy to overlook. But don't underestimate the significance of your faithfulness, of your obedience. Now, secondly, the priority of prayer. The kingdom of God is marked by prayer. David's kingdom is marked by prayer. Notice how he begins. After this, this verse 1, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, To which shall I go up? And he said to Hebron. So David went up. Now, David recognizes Saul has died. He knows that he is the Lord's anointed. He knows that he's the one who is to be the king. And he's thought about this. He's looking ahead. He's thinking about what what does this look like? He knows it looks like going to Judah. I'll start with the cities of Judah. He knows that. But he's not presumptuous, and he's not going to to seek to rule in his own wisdom and strength. So he begins with prayer, and he asks the Lord, shall I go up? He looks for the Lord's confirmation. Shall I go up? And the Lord's specific instruction, where shall I go up? Not just shall I go up to Judah, but where? And the Lord says to Hebron. 
And we see from the very beginning, David's rule, his kingdom is marked by prayer. And God says, go up to Hebron. And David in his praying life, David as a man of prayer, is led by prayer. And prayer leads him in a certain direction. And it leads him to a certain destination. So first of all, it leads him in a certain direction. Notice as you're reading this, I mean, these are geographical markers. But we hear again and again in these short verses in David's prayer, go up, 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 go up. Now, this is true. This is a matter of topography. So Hebron is the high point in Judah. So yeah, he's literally going to go up. But there's more to it than that. There's a spiritual significance to this. It means that David's kingdom is going to be a kingdom that is, is a kingdom centered and sustained by prayer, a kingdom that is oriented upwards towards God. It's not about David. It's not David's kingdom. It's the kingdom of God. And he, his life is going to be oriented towards God. He's going to be always looking upwards, always trusting in his word, always trusting in God's promises. But prayer also leads him to a particular location, to Hebron. To Hebron. Not to any of the other cities or towns in Judah, but Hebron. And if we are careful readers of the Bible we will recognize the significance of Hebron. Hebron is a special place. It's a holy place. It's a sacred place. We first find out about Hebron in the book of Genesis. Hebron and the area around Hebron was the one piece of land that Abraham himself owned. It was his territory. He owned it. Now remember that God promised Abraham the whole land and all of your descendants, they will enter into, they will receive this land as an inheritance. Abraham believed that promise, but he received as a first fruits this city, Hebron, this area. Now we also, as we read on in the book of Genesis, we find that just outside of Hebron was a cemetery, a cave. Abraham was buried there. Isaac was buried there. Jacob was buried there. And as we read through the conflict in the book of Genesis, there's conflict between Isaac and Ishmael. There's conflict between Esau and Jacob. There's very touching moments in that narrative where Ishmael and Isaac come together and they bury their father, Abraham, in Hebron. And then Esau and Jacob, they come together and they bury their father, Isaac, in Hebron. So Hebron is a place that bears witness to God's covenant, God's faithfulness. But it's also a place where brothers come together. That's what David has to do. He has to bring brothers together. Now, the reason I had us hear this account between Abner and Joab. We're going to come to those guys next week. But I want us to hear that because here's two brothers who are not coming together. And that's not what the kingdom of God looks like. But David says, no, it's centered in Hebron. It's a place where brothers come together. And prayer leads David to Hebron, leads him to this place, which signifies God's presence, God's covenant faithfulness. God's promises. 
Now, as we read on in the Bible, we come to the book of Numbers, and we find out that when the spies go into the promised land, they go to Hebron. And just outside Hebron, they find this huge cluster of grapes, and they bring it back as evidence of, of the blessings of this land that God has promised. And there are only two faithful spies, if you know this from, from the history, Caleb and Joshua. Caleb's impressed with Hebron. And he says to Moses, when we come into the land, can I have Hebron? And Moses says, yes. And so in the book of Joshua, we read that Caleb, as an old man, goes in there, and Hebron, of all, uh, of all the places, is populated by giants, we find out. There's giants that live there, and Caleb, as an old man, fights the giants. He defeats them. He takes Hebron. Now, David knows this too. David is somebody that's also fought giants, isn't he? And he's going to this, this place. It's a place where God is victorious, a place where God reigns, a place where seemingly small things overcome big things. Now, prayer leads David to Hebron. And Hebron itself, again, we'll read on. I'm sorry, I'm giving you a lot of Bible history here. But we also read on in the book of Joshua that Hebron is a Levitical city. It's a city of priests. It's a city of refuge. It's a sanctuary. And that's significant for David too because his kingdom is going to be centered in a sanctuary, a place of worship, a place of prayer. Worship and prayer isn't just going to be some sort of religious accessory to his kingdom. It's going to be central to his kingdom. It will sustain his kingdom. Now, for all of us, this is a reminder that prayer leads us to Hebron. It connects us to the history of God's people. It connects us to the history of God's covenant faithfulness, God's love. It connects us to the history of mighty works that God has performed through his people. And we look out at the world around us, and yeah, we see giants. But prayer leads us to a place where we find, yes, we are in communion with a greater history here. My life, my story, this church, the history, the work of this church is part of a greater story. And prayer locates us in that story. It situates us in what God is doing in history. And therefore, it gives us confidence. It gives us boldness. It gives us a certain sanctified vision to see what God is doing. It gives us hope. And prayer promotes the peace of the church. You know, the way, the way of the kingdom is not the way of Abner and Joab. And Hebron is a place of prayer, the place where brothers come together. And it's a reminder to us, if you have something against a, a brother or a sister, pray for them, intercede for them. And one of the beautiful expressions of our unity as a church is when we come together and with one voice we pray, we come before God. So prayer is a mark of the kingdom of God. Then benediction and invitation. So look at verse, uh, the rest of verse 4 on to verse 6. When they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed, his loyal, you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord. And buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. 
Now last week we saw David modeling for us what lamentation looks like. Now we see him modeling for us what benediction, what blessing looks like. But the two are related, lamentation and benediction, lamenting and blessing. Because as David was articulating his grief, and as he wrote that lamentation, he remembered the good things that Saul had done. He remembered the time of grace in Saul's life. He remembered his valor and his victory in battle. He remembered the blessings that Saul brought to Israel. And and lamentation draws our attention to those things which are good and pure and true and just and lovely and praiseworthy. David's been fixing his thoughts, fixing his attention on those things. And now he hears this report of the men of Jabesh-Gilead, and he recognizes what is good and lovely and praiseworthy in what they've done. And so he blesses them. And lamentation and benediction, they go together. David is a man who laments, and therefore he's a man who blesses. And he blesses these men of Jabesh-Gilead because of their loyalty to Saul. And the loyalty that they had for Saul took a very concrete expression. Saul's body had been gathered up from the battlefield by the Philistines. It had been degraded. It had been taken back to Philistia. And these men went deep into enemy enemy territory. They recovered the body of Saul. And they gave him a proper burial. This was their expression of love, their expression of loyalty to Saul. And here, this is a reminder to us that The bodies of the deceased deserve honor, deserve a proper burial. This was one of the great ministries of the church in the early centuries in the Roman Empire. There would be times where a great plague would go through a city, let's say Carthage in North Africa. And many of the the Romans and the pagans living in the city, they would leave. And they would leave people just to die. And they they wouldn't touch the bodies. And one of the diaconal ministries of the church was to send people into the cities to collect the dead bodies, to prepare them for burial, to give them a proper burial. And in the, in the history of the West, we've seen this, you know, funeral practices that reflect what the Word of God shows us. And so these men showed this loyalty. And David says, may you be blessed for it. May the Lord show you His love and faithfulness because of it. And this isn't just an empty word of blessing. David says, he makes a personal promise, and I will do good to you. Now in all of this, there's a call to us to be a people, not just of lamentation, but a people of benediction. And this means we are people who are not just simply captivated by everything that's wrong in the world, and I know there's a lot that causes us grief. But we're not simply captivated by those things. We're people who are looking for what is good and true and lovely and praiseworthy. And we we bless it. We pronounce benediction upon it. And we look into the lives of one another. And we're looking for what is true, what is good, what is praiseworthy. You know, Pastor Trevor just led us in a prayer, calling us to repent from the opposite, from being judgmental, for looking for what's wrong. Well, here David shows us that we need to look for what's good, what's right, and let's bless one another 
Let's praise one another for those acts of loyalty and loving kindness. But David doesn't just simply bless, he calls. It's not just a benediction, it's an invitation. Look at verse 7. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Now here's what David is doing. He's saying to them, your Lord is dead, Saul. I've just been anointed king. Let your hands be strong. Be valiant. Come and join me. Submit to my rule. Come be part of my kingdom. It's an invitation. It's a calling. And so now the men of Jabesh-Gilead have a choice. And we're about to read that Abner is going to put forward Ishbosheth as king. Now, Jabesh Gilead is raided in the territory of the house of Saul, raided in the territory of Abner. And so, what David is saying strengthen your hands, be valiant, come and join me. And where the men of Jabesh Gilead are, well, it'd be very convenient for them just to join the house of Saul. That'd be easy for them. It'd be safe. That is a safe move. That's a prudent move if they were to do that. And they have a history with Saul. And so David is saying, don't don't join the house of Saul. Don't stay with the house of Saul. But they may look down and say, well, that little kingdom David has down there in Hebron, it doesn't look too promising. You know, if I'm kind of looking at how things are going here, kind of looks like Abner's the way to go. And so they have a choice. But the house of Saul has been rejected by God. And David is the Lord's anointed. So this isn't just a, a decision that has to be made based on sort of looking at the, you know, the political reality on the ground. It's a matter of faith. It's a matter of what's right. And we are in a similar situation today. Because you can make an analogy between the house of Saul in that kingdom and churches that reflect or look like the house of Saul in that kingdom. And then the house of David, the kingdom of of Judah, and churches that look like that. Now, churches that look like the house of Saul, well, they have the spirit of Saul. Remember that Saul is the king that the people wanted. We want a king like this. Why? Because he's a king like the nations. We want to be like the world. We want to be like the nations. That's the spirit of the kingdom of Saul, to be like the world. And so wherever you see churches that are more concerned with the prevailing winds of culture and letting the world decide, well, this is what's right, this is what's wrong, this is what's true, this is what's false, this is what really matters, letting the world set the priorities for the church. Well, that's the house of Saul. That's the kingdom of Saul. And like the house of Saul for Jabesh, the men of Jabesh Gilead, it's very convenient to join that church. It's comfortable. It's easy. But then you have the house of David, the kingdom of Christ. And the decision is, will we submit to the rule of Christ? But just as David sent messengers, just as David blessed them, promised to do good, and then said, come, follow me, so the Lord Jesus says to us after he blesses us, after he promises to be good and gracious to us, says, come, follow me. 
And there will be a time in these coming years where it will be more difficult to stay in a church like this. It's going to get harder. That's why David says, strengthen your hands, be valiant. It is going to be take strength. It is going to require valor. And the men of Jabesh-Gilead, they're not, they're not considering, hey, let's become Philistines. You know, they're not just going to totally abandon Israel. And so for us, it may not be that we completely abandon Christianity or abandon the church, but we may be tempted, let's go with the more progressive liberal church. It's a little more comfy there. It's easier there. And so it's a warning to us. We have this decision to make. Are we going to be with the kingdom of God? Are we going to submit to the rule of Christ? So there's blessing and then there's invitation. There's calling. And then finally, there's opposition. So this is what we read in verses 8 to 11. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth. Saul's son was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Well, this is another mark of the kingdom of God, opposition. There's a rival king. There's opposition to the kingdom and the rule of David. And the source of this opposition isn't Ishbosheth, it is Abner. And we already know from 1 Samuel chapter 1, or from 1 Samuel, that Abner was Saul's right-hand man. He was his military leader, his military commander. And Ishbosheth is, is, a, is a weak man. So Abner has taken Ishbosheth. He's made him king. But everybody recognizes this is a puppet king. Abner's the one who's really in charge here. He's the source of the opposition. He's the rival to David, to the kingdom of God. Now, on the one hand, we can look out at the world and we can recognize all of the points of conflict, all of the, all of the hostility and the opposition we have from the world in terms of our allegiance to Christ, the kingdom of God, the church. And yes, we can look within, within the, the church and see there, that there is conflict there. There are Abners. There are people who are, who are leading false churches. And we'll have time next week to consider Abner and people like Joab in the church. But what I want to conclude with today is a warning that we watch for the spirit of Abner not out there, but in our own hearts. We need to first watch for and recognize the spirit of Abner in our own hearts. Abner has been Saul's right-hand man all along. He knows exactly what the Lord has done in Saul's life. He knows that Saul's rejected. He'll say later on, we'll hear this next week in chapter 3, he knows David is the Lord's anointed. He knows the kingdom belongs to David. He knows that. And yet he props up Ishbosheth as the king. Because he can't control David. He can control Ishbosheth. 
He doesn't want a king to which he submits, to which he surrenders. He wants a king that he can control, that he can use for his own ends. And there's a warning to, to us in, that in, in our hearts, we have to be honest about the areas of our life where we oppose the rule of Christ, where we refuse to bend the knee to Christ. We don't surrender to Christ. The spirit of Abner is alive in our hearts. And I know for myself, even in this last year, there's been some inter- eternal conflict. I've recognized the opposition in my own heart to surrendering to Christ. I've got my own ideas about you know, how my life should go and what things should look like. I want to do it my way. And so consider yourselves, consider for yourself in your own hearts. Do you really want Christ as king, Jesus as king, or would you rather have Ishbosheth? And so use Jesus as a means to your own ends. You know, I've got my own desires, my own designs, my own plans, and you know, Christianity might help me in that and serve my purposes. And so this morning we're reminded that there is the spirit of Abner in our hearts. We need to recognize it. And we need to renounce it. We need to repent of it. We need to listen to the invitation and respond to the invitation of Christ. Come and follow me. Bend the knee to me. I'm your king. And so this morning we see in this very small kingdom, this modest kingdom of David, the marks of the kingdom of God. Yes, it starts small. It's a reminder to us that we need to prove faithful with the little things. And God will entrust to us greater things. And remember that the greater things are not necessarily what the world or what we might think are the greater things. The kingdom of God is marked by prayer. We need, to, we need to dwell, reside, as David did. You know, David has a family there in Hebron. We need to reside and dwell in Hebron, the place of prayer. And so recognize our place within the history of what God is doing, God's people, his presence, his purposes. Kingdom of God is marked by benediction and invitation. And so it should be among us. We're a people of benediction. We're looking for what is good and praiseworthy, and we're blessing one another. We are resting, we're abiding in the blessing of Christ, his promises, his spirit. And we hear the call of Christ to follow him. And remember what Jesus says, that unless we are are willing to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him, we're not worthy to be his disciples. And that's one of the reasons we come to this table every Sunday. Because every Sunday we are renouncing the spirit of Abner in our own hearts. And we are renewing our allegiance to our Lord, to our Savior, to Christ. That's what coming to this table means. And this is a meal of blessing. It's a meal of grace. It's a meal in which the greater son of David says, I will do good to you. That's what Jesus says to us in this meal. So we receive his blessing. We receive his grace. But also we respond to his call. We bend the knee. We submit to his rule. So let's come to the Lord's table now, knowing that, yes, this is a table of blessing, but it's also the place where we renew our commitment, our allegiance to the King of Kings, 
and the Lord of Lords. This message has been brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share this content, but do not charge for it or alter it in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. For more resources, please visit ezrainstitute.ca.